The Start On On Demand. Hey, it's Brett. It's the Tuesday edition of the podcast for The Start with Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And today we're going to talk about that huge fire on the edge of Transcona on Monday. Black smoke just barfing into the sky. We're going to speak to the head of the United Firefighters of Winnipeg, Alex Forrest, to talk about just what those firefighters were dealing with on Monday as that massive fire at the asphalt plant took hold and could be seen from all over the city of Winnipeg. We're also going to talk about an MLA who was kicked out of caucus after making a number of inappropriate comments to various women. A study says customers would be happier if they were allowed to tip as they chose rather than having to deal with a mandatory gratuity or service charge. What do you think? Should restaurants ditch mandatory tipping if that is their policy? We're also going to talk about fishing. There's a rally at the legislature that involves the declining population of walleye and sauger in Lake Winnipeg. And this is something that should be on your radar if it's not. And we're going to tell you why. And Evil Dead, one of the biggest cult classic films of all time. It's almost 40 years old. And in Winnipeg, starting this week, there is a musical version that is being put on just in time for Halloween. Yesterday, Loren, I was driving into Transcona to see my family. And as I was approaching, when I got to the top of the Nairn Overpass, I could see way at the edge of the city, just the black smoke just belching out into the sky. Yeah, it prompted so many listeners to write in because you were really seeing it from all over Winnipeg. And I even saw people on Twitter talking about flying into Winnipeg and seeing it from the air and what that looked like as well. So uh, fire officials actually say that fire on the outskirts of Transcona was comparable to the blaze at Speedway International about six years ago uh, in terms of just the resources that were involved. You remember that one, Greg, with the huge plume of smoke in the same... Boniface Industrial Area. That was in 2012. This one yesterday um, pulled in uh, crews from the Arm of Springfield, members of the Canadian Armed Forces, Winnipeg Police and Sustainable Development, as, as well as Winnipeg firefighters, all battling that blaze at the asphalt plant. Joining us now to share more on how that went down and the search for a cause today is United Firefighters of Winnipeg President Alex Forrest. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, guys. I was just talking about the resources kind of drawn from all over Winnipeg and outside of the city yesterday. How have your members described what they were dealing with? Well, we, uh, uh, like I talked to a number of members that were there and they uh, said it was one of the worst fires that they had fought. It it was a uh, tremendous fire because anytime you're dealing with asphalt or bitumen, as, as, as it's also called, there's almost 4 million liters of this that was burning. And uh, there was the initial aspect was they had to worry about the explosive aspect. So that's why they evacuated 800 meters because uh, there is a big explosive risk. But what what we're dealing with today is now is the incredible toxic exposure that these firefighters had, uh, because whenever there's a fire of this magnitude, there's solvents and there's uh, uh, different chemicals such as benzene, dioxane, tulanes, saturated aromatic hydrocarbons and all these chemicals. Firefighters ingest these chemicals, absorb these chemicals and they also breathe these chemicals when they go on a scene like this. And uh, this was really a hazmat fire, but unfortunately we don't have 
specific hazmat clothes that can protect us 100% when we go into these environments because our firefighting gear has to protect us from the explosion and the fire risk, but it doesn't ex- uh, protect us from the hazards afterwards with the smoke and because it goes through our, our gear, it gets on our, our uh, skin and it gets absorbed. And these are ex- some of the most extreme toxic carcinogens uh, known uh, to IARC and the World Health Organization. Alex, I was speaking to someone who owns a business within 900 meters of that fire yesterday, and he said that the the taste, you could taste the chemicals in the air, and he chose to send his employees home because of his experience, even though he was outside the evacuation zone. But I, I'm, I'm fascinated about this aspect of protection and lack thereof. Is this yeah. because there are are no there is no equipment that would cover off all bases in terms of protecting firefighters from these chemicals help, help us understand that a little bit better yeah uh, like our firefighting gear has to be able to protect us from ambient heat but it also has to be able to breathe so if it breathes it also allows the chemicals and and the toxins to go through our gear uh, many of our firefighters uh, for instance, they will decontaminate right after the fire. They will have showers. And two or three days later, they will have showers again, and they will see the water black because that's the carcinogens, the benzenes, the hydrines, uh, the two lanes, the hydrocarbons coming out of their system. And so what we've done is we've instructed every single one of our firefighters to put in an exposure report. Uh, because they were exposed to these dangerous chemicals. And one of the things that we're also doing is that any of the other agencies that were there fighting this fire with us, such as the police, the cadets, even many of the reporters were there for five to six hours uh, in this environment. That is a very negative environment. And for instance, benzene is one of the most toxic cancer-causing agents. And benzene stays in your body system up, upwards of five to seven days. And it's a very dangerous chemical. Are crews still on scene this morning? I know they were putting out hot spots last night. Is there still activity there? Yes, I understand that the crews are still going through it. They're still going through the hot spots because they don't want this thing to flare up again. So they are uh, looking at it. It was just a great team effort from everybody in Winnipeg. We had probably close to 100 Winnipeg firefighters. We had the airport firefighting crews there because they have the special uh, uh, machines that have the ability to put out extreme amount of foam that can sort of cover, mitigate the damages. Uh, We had the Canadian Armed Forces. They also had equipment there helping us. And, of course, we always get the support from our police brothers and sisters that helped us to to be able to evacuate so quickly because in a fire of this magnitude one of the things that you're always worried about is the explosion because the explosion asphalt is extremely uh, explosive so that's what the crews were, were worried about initially and it was a a tough call because do we send even firefighters in but because of the toxic level of the smoke the incident commander said, well, we have to take that chance. We have to try and uh, we will evacuate the public. But the firefighters still went in there because they had to mitigate that because there was 4 million liters that uh, was on fire. And if we would have let that go even for another couple hours, uh, you, you could have had a toxic smoke that would have covered half the city. Alex Forrest, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We very much appreciate the time and the effort of uh, your firefighters yesterday. Okay, cheers. Thank you. United Firefighters of Winnipeg President Alex Forrest joining us live on 680 CJOB. Here's the headline. 
National Post article. Restaurants should let diners freely tip servers to raise customer satisfactions. This is according to a study. First of all, the fact that someone thought to do a study on this makes me kind of chuckle. But Mackling, you worked in restaurant businesses, the restaurant business for a long time. So I want to start with you. What do you think of that? Well, as a server, I always, you know, one of the best things about going to work in a restaurant was earning tips. Right? I mean, uh, it was... It was that sense of instant gratification. It was that report card that said, yeah, you did a good job or, yeah, you really need to get better at this. And so I always appreciated that instant feedback. That's the way I always viewed it was feedback. And it served as a motivation sometimes when you got a lousy tip on a table, you thought twice like, geez, what could I have done differently? And I think that if not you did... Not spill the strawberry daiquiri on them, which is something really, I did a couple times. I, oh, you know what? My former... My, Sorry. my typing teacher from grade 11 came into Chi-Chi's one day for lunch. She had this beautiful yellow cardigan on, and uh, I spilt a strawberry margarita all See, over her It all comes her back eyes. to strawberry. I have strawberry oh, daiquiri, yeah. Man. And you can't clean that up. Like you, you dumped can't. a daiquiri on spilled somebody? The, like I, I worked as in a Mexican. It was actually my uncle's restaurant in Ottawa, so he gave me the job just because, full nepotism. And he's like, you're <laughs> terrible at this. And I had actually waitressed for years. Uh, but I did spill a strawberry daiquiri on someone, and I had to offer to pay for her coat and her dry cleaning. That oh was your tip money. And actually, she still tipped really well. Like she felt she felt bad for me. It was just a complete <laughs> schmozzle of running into somebody, and you got a tray full of drinks, and someone's not paying attention. And I didn't deserve a tip, but that you know, like the she had a great attitude about it all. I got lucky. Yeah, this whole forced tipping thing. I get it on a larger group. Uh, why? But, why? Why? Like, is it because you think you're still not going to get a good tip? Like, well, every person probably would put fifteen to twenty percent. You, you would think, but I also remember a Sunday afternoon. This is almost thirty years ago. I'll never forget having to work a birthday party. Someone had requested me as their server, and they handed me all the money. I think it was about four hundred and fifty bucks. It was a kid's birthday to boot. They said we can't afford to tip you, but we just wanted to thank you. For your service. Well, that was nice. Oh, it was <laughs> fantastic. Thank oh. you. Yeah. Doesn't put gas in the car, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's what I wanted <laughs> to be doing on a Sunday in the summertime. So, anyway, I've been on both sides of it, and I, I prefer as a server to earn my tips. As a restaurateur, I prefer that the uh, that the uh, people that are coming into the restaurant dictate the tips. That's my take on it. Jeff, and you just said you're a big tipper. I am a big tipper. Like, and if and I agree with this article. It feels good to leave a tip. I I leave 20% no matter what happens mm-hmm. just because the math is easy. And then I feel like a big shot. Uh, <laughs> well, just belly belly, Jeff, belly like, full and I'm and just making it rain yeah. on the poor <laughs> schmozzle who had to bring me water because I only order water because I don't want to get daiquiri spilt on me. <laughs> yeah, it does yeah. feel yeah, – I, I, with Jeff, it, it feels good to, to reward – Good service. I was at an East India company on Saturday, and I actually gave my our server a tip before we got in the bill because I didn't know what the I didn't wasn't sure what the cost was, but I gave him ten bucks. Uh, he was super nice to us. He was fun. He had great charisma. He had a nice shiny, sparkly tie. He was really good to us. And then uh, I got the bill after I handed him the tip, and I was walking up to pay, and I looked down at the bill and realized that the bill. Uh, by your math, Kelly, because you you've always say make sure you're tipping on the subtotal, right? Not yeah, the, before the tax. Yeah, uh, but it was a hundred bucks. So I ran back and gave another five to make sure that it was fifteen. I said, "Sorry, I tipped. I gave you yeah. my tip before I saw the cost. So please 
take another five dollars because I would have felt like I was cheaping them out, right? Yeah. So now it feels good. What about you, uh, Moore? Oh, I always uh, tip uh, generously, especially uh, when the, when there's good service. If and we've just been lucky. I don't remember the last time I had bad service from the the server. Uh, but, you know, if it's a university student, uh, you know, if over the course of the conversation, uh, you know, it's a single parent or whatever, then we'll uh, pad the total a little bit just to, you know, to say thank you uh, and, uh, you know, use this uh, however you, you please. But, yeah, I, we, you know, the majority of servers you get are, are university students who could really use the help. So do you know why that? not? You find he out about them? talking. You get yeah. to know well, we, them. We They're actually not just have a conversation, a, yeah. Jeff. No. We don't just sit there. I consider and... the tip part of the, I don't need to talk to you. Here's your money. <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> when you're sitting at your table watching a movie on your phone, that's how right. a conversation started. I'm not going to the restaurant to meet strangers. I'm going there to, so I don't have to cook. You know what I don't like, though? I've been to restaurants where they have the 20% on the bill because it was a big table. I think it was in Vegas. And then the server said, feel free to add your own gratuity. Oh. And I was like, oh, I don't know, man. Like It was a $1,000 bill because it was a wedding um, bride's bridal shower thing and so it was already a $250 tip and I thought like you just I don't I don't know how much more you think wow. you need for this and if I recall I can't remember if it was a buffet but it wasn't like it was wasn't hard it wasn't a ta- we weren't yeah. taxing it, it, table yeah like, I was just gonna say it wasn't like he had to remember a no, whole lot of things it wasn't even so. like there was a bunch of wine you know I mean there was drinks and stuff but it was a super simple meal I always hated even using the word tip or right. gratuity right he leaned in and I and I was oh, stone cold so yeah. and I was like yeah I think you're good like <laughs> get good away you <laughs> right now we start in the water, Loren McNabb. Well, yeah, the Manitoba Wildlife Federation has been, has been sounding the alarm over declining walleye populations, saying they're in danger of disappearing from Lake Winnipeg. And if that happens, it's also warning of a huge hit to Manitoba's economy. By its estimates, walleye fishing adds at least $50 million to Manitoba's GDP every year. But in a recent survey of more than 700 anglers, almost half said they weren't finding as many walleye on Lake Winnipeg. And 43% said when they found them, the walleye were smaller. So at noon today, members of the Wildlife Federation, along with anglers and some environmentalists, will be outside Manitoba's legislature to rally over a problem they say they've been watching, worrying and warning about for years. Mark Klimchuk is a seasoned anger angler and will be on the steps of the legislature today but joins us on the phone now good morning mark good morning thanks for having me give us a sense what your experience has been on lake winnipeg when you've gone fishing over the last few summers and winters uh i've noticed that uh, a lot of the fish are smaller we're not uh, seeing the big fish like we used to um and most of them are scattered throughout the lake it's um, very hard to you know find those good quality fish that we're looking for Mark, this is super distressing. As if the health of the lake overall isn't a concern enough with regards to algae blooms and then, of course, zebra mussels. And now this. Do we know what is causing this? Is it sudden or are we just noticing it all of a sudden? What is causing this change in terms of the of the fish and the size of them? I think it's big, the biggest thing here is lack of management on the lake. Um, this is this is nothing new. This has been going on for years. You know, past government, you know, pretty much turned their their eyes around and never even, you know, considered what was actually happening there. And it's only built and built and built. 
And I think now is the time for our current government to, you know, step up and, and be the heroes and, uh, you know, address the, the issues that are actually happening on the lake. Just to clear that up, you're talking about um, co- like the quotas for commercial fishers or how, uh, how that works in terms of how much they're catching and how that needs to change? Yeah, it could be a little bit of everything there. You know, there's no, the science isn't there, the biologists aren't there. Um, the enforcement isn't on the lake as well either, and 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 that needs to to really step up. So every winter, for example, uh, and I see that it's described as walleye madness lures thousands of anglers onto Lake Winnipeg. I don't fish, so that's not uh, something that I am familiar with. But is so that's the case? Thousands of people head on out onto the lake to catch walleye. Yeah, it, it pretty much started as what we called March Madness when. You know the big uh, the big groups of walleye would come into the salt basin of Lake Winnipeg, and people would congregate, you know, in a very very small area to target them, and it it pretty much exploded that you know from first ice till you know the last day of the of the season that there would be you know thousands and thousands of people there from all across you know Canada and North America coming up just to target these these big fish and catch a fish of a lifetime. Mark, there's an, uh, I think there's an, uh, a perception that this resource has been managed over the years, that there was some government body that was keeping an eye on the health, not only of the lake and the water itself, but the species within it. And certainly in terms of fish marketing and, and taking the fish out of the lake, processing it and marketing it to the world, have we been under uh, misinformation here in terms of who's been keeping an eye or maybe more importantly, not keeping an eye on this resource? I think a lot of that information you know, going back probably about eight years ago was probably hidden when, you know, the government at that time seeing, you know, how bad the the, the lake actually was. And um, they pretty much just, you know, turned a blind eye to it and uh, they kept all that information away from the public. So the report from the Manitoba Wildlife Federation notes that there's been a massive decline, 85 percent decline in medium sized walleye, 96 percent decline in sauger and that the decline is actually greater because some fishers might be targeting smaller immature walleye which means they don't have a chance to spawn so we have all this information and we're sharing it now with our listeners it sounds like officials are are partly at least aware of what's going on what what do we do now Mm, maybe we could look at uh, you know letting the science actually rule the the lake first maybe like a scientific uh, stock assessment team that's you know a third party that has you know nothing to do with you know the provincial government the commercial or the angler side and let them assess you know the actual populations of the the lake and then you know determine you know what's actually in there and you know are we losing our good quality breeders you know um our commercial fishermen targeting just you know the future the small walleye and once that resource is gone it it's going to be gone Mark Klimchuk, seasoned angler, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. You guys have a good day. Mark will be on the steps of the legislature later today at noon. There's going to be a rally. Members of the Wildlife Federation, along with anglers and some environmentalists, will be there uh, to talk about this problem that they've been worrying about for years. And just looking at uh, the economic value of Lake Winnipeg's recreational walleye fishery. Nearly 100,000 adult anglers fished for walleye on Lake Winnipeg and its southern tributaries in the last two years alone. 
They spent an estimated $221 million and generated about $102 million in net economic activity. I was talking to Mark yesterday, and he mentioned, just to set up the interview, that there's a bunch of people in the States watching this as well because you have fishers coming from all over North America. Lake Winnipeg is super popular and very well-known, and so folks in Fargo are waiting to see what and if will be done about this. And then he also pointed to, you know, we've, we've been through this before. Uh, if you talk to people who live off Lake Manitoba, I think Lake Winnipegosis even, there, there's been issues there with fish populations. And so there has to be lessons learned that that we should be paying attention to. I am, I'm shaking. I'm so angry when I hear stories like this because it feels like we love to talk the talk, but we will not walk the walk. We will not pay the price, do the things required to protect the things that we tout as world class and our advantage in Manitoba. Transportation is supposed to be a big deal, yet we have these crappy highways with no interchanges and, you know, the trucking capital of Western Canada. And we just pay lip service to these things that are supposed to be so important to the economy that we that we put in commercials and we market yeah. to the rest of the I world. I was just going to say, half of like, travel Manitoba's on, are the lakes and they're the fish and all the things that like we hold dear and then what are we doing about it? It makes me so angry. Mackling McGarry and McNabb on 680 CJOB. Very excited to introduce our next guests. We'll tell you why in a moment. But first, Greg, we're excited to share this news from the Lonely Planet. Yeah, Lonely Planet. They had a TV show for years and years on PBS. I can't remember Ian's last name. Used to go all over the world. They had a variety of different hosts. I saw him come to Winnipeg. Gosh, must have been 15 years ago. Uh, All that to say that Lonely Planet has ranked Manitoba as number eight on your eight uh, on your most desirable travel list, the regions of the world that you should visit. Piedmont, Italy is number one. The Catskills in the United States is number two. Northern Peru at number three. The Red Center of Australia at number four. Scotland's Highlands and Islands at number five. And then the Russian Far East, maybe the only major city as cold as Winnipeg, Vladivostok is on that okay. list at number six. Uh, Gujarat, uh, pardon me for the pronunciation there, in India at number seven. And then it's Manitoba, Canada at number eight. The headline, Lonely Planet Loves Manitoba. You can find it at globalnews.ca and at cjob.com. I have seen the dark shadows moving in the woods and I have no doubt that Whatever I have resurrected through this book is sure to come calling for me. Greg, uh, you don't like scary movies, so you've probably never seen Evil Dead, have you? Have you ever even heard of it? Oh, yeah, of course I've heard of it. <laughs> have you seen it? No. <laughs> no. It's okay. You're almost sheepish about that. It's okay. No, no. No, nope, I feel feel guilty saying that in this room right now. Oh, don't feel guilty. The, the reason why we're talking about Evil Dead is because there is a show happening at the Park Theater, and it starts tomorrow, Evil Dead the Musical, Bigger, Badder, Bloodier. And in studio with us, we have Dan DeAker, who is the co-producer and co-director. We have Ryan Ash, who is playing Ash, and Robin Slade playing Annie Noby. And they're all live in studio with us. Uh, good morning to all three of you. Good morning. So, good Dan, morning. Evil Dead, for those who are not familiar, who haven't seen the film, 
Um, give us, can you give us like a snapshot synopsis of what is Evil Dead about? Absolutely. Evil Dead is the, uh, the, the, the grandfather of the Cabin in the Woods movies. Five college students go to a cabin in the woods. They unwittingly uh, resurrect a bunch of demons who then possess them and murder them horribly. Yeah. It's yep. <laughs> <laughs> when did the first movie come out? Was it uh, I believe it was 81. Wow. Yeah. And then in 1987, there was Evil Dead 2. Now, was that technically a sequel or was it sort of a remake of itself or what? It's a half remake, half sequel. They sort of took uh, one of the main stories from the first film remade it for the first act of the film and then for the rest of evil dead 2 it's it's its own entity and, um, then, and then there was army of darkness in 1992 so ash uh you're playing the character ash played by bruce campbell in the films and ash is one of i think one of the biggest safe to say one of the biggest cult characters there's ever been in movies yeah yeah why do you think that is well i mean i think that uh the first part is that it's very hard to do horror comedy well. I think that a lot of times it kind of uh, it, the blend of the two genres is uh, is actually kind of uh, fragile. Um, and that uh, Evil Dead, notably Evil Dead 2 and then Army of Darkness did it really, really well. And also it's just uh, coming out of the 80s where action stars were very, you know, bravado kind of heavy and unapologetically like uh, Ash was a character that – was trying to be that, but also was getting his butt kicked by demons along the way and uh, was humiliated throughout. And that even continues to the Ash versus Evil Dead series for stars. They kind of still do that thing where Ash tries to have that really machismo bent and it's constantly sabotaged by his circumstances and he's made to look silly. Well, and he is a fool, right? Yeah, well, he's absolutely. That. He's a boy from Michigan and he's doing the best he can <laughs> in the circumstances that he can with the ego that he has. But he's got a chainsaw. How bad can things be going for him? Yeah, he's got a chainsaw and seemingly unlimited supply of gas. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I never thought about that. Good Lord. So uh, Robin Slade, Annie Noby. Who is Annie Noby? Uh, Annie is uh, is an archaeologist, uh, and she's the daughter of a uh, an esteemed archaeologist, uh, Professor Noby. And uh, uh, they are uh, the ones who have um, unearthed the Book of the Dead. Um, and so in, in the musical version, she is there with the missing pages um, and uh, and then a nightmare ensues. So the, the movie was super gory. They, and then the sequels were even more gory. So how much gore can one expect, Dan, from the musical? We have gallons and gallons of blood that we are going to happily pour on our audience. Really? Night overnight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, our, our blood is actually sourced from the film The Revenant. Uh, it was left over after the film was completed. So uh, there's a little Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy in, in every drop. Wow. Our initial <laughs> bid was actually to get the blood from The Breakfast Club, but that <laughs> fell through. Uh, Molly Ringwald is very possessive of that cachet of blood. Okay. So. <laughs> the Breakfast Club. Uh, it's available on Criterion Collection Blu-ray, by the way, if you want to get that. But uh, so the 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 musical for Evil Dead, where did that begin? That's been, how long has it been now? A decade, uh, maybe? 2003 it was written. Wow. Uh, I believe it was a, folks out of, uh, a group of folks out of Toronto. And since then, it's become this, this global hit. Um, you know, it was in New York, off-Broadway for a while. Uh, they had a standing show in New York, uh, pardon me, in um, Vegas for, for quite a while as well. But one of those staples is, is really luring the fans of the franchise, but also the fact that um, 
it's silly and goofy and blends the comedy and horror really well, but that we get to spray people with blood. And that's and that's a staple of the show. The park theaters. Park theaters kind of become like the place for this kind of a show, right? What mm-hmm. what is it about that particular venue that works so well? It's just uh, the the owner, Eric Castleman, um, he's been extremely gracious in allowing us to move in and do these silly shows year over year. Um, the venue itself, it has that old vaudeville feeling to it, um, which also kind of blends really well with, with what we're doing. Um, you know, it's not Shakespeare, uh, and I love Shakespeare, but this is not <laughs> Shakespeare. And I think that, uh, you know, it's just the, the two sort of merge in a, in a really positive, fun way. Okay, well, we'll continue our conversation in a moment. In studio, we have Dan DeJager, who is co-producer and co-director, Ryan Ash, who plays Ash, and Robin Slade, who plays Annie Noby for Evil Dead the Musical, Bigger, Badder, Bloodier. It starts tomorrow at Park Theatre, uh, brought to you by Wasteland Productions. Now, Annie, you were telling us that you have done a lot of musical improv, but this is your first scripted musical, right? Yes, it is, since uh, since high school, which is like a, a, a far cry from what this is. So are, are you nervous about that? Uh, yes, but uh, I mean, nervous and excited just butt right up against each other. So uh, I'm trying to lean more to the excited side than the nervous side. How much blood gets on you during these shows? Uh, a, a fair bit. Yeah, as it grows? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I, I get a good dousing um, after one of the other characters dies. Well, how many shows are you doing and what are the logistics in terms of don't you have to start out? Blood free on your clothes. It's what a are lot the of laundry. There? It's a lot of laundry. No kidding. Yeah. What's the blood made of? Ooh, huh. well, I, don't, I don't know the the uh, the exact recipe. It's yeah. It's 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 an actual film based uh, blood okay. serum. Whatever they put in there. Take a tablespoon with you. (laughs) Try it out. Now, Ryan, uh, this is a musical. A lot of people, when they hear the word musical, immediately that puts people's backs. Ah, I don't like musicals. But uh, this isn't that kind of a show, is it? Yeah, I mean, it does have the musical component. There will be people singing, dancing, all that. But in addition to that, we've got tons of fight choreography. People's heads are being chopped off. We have adult-rated humor. Uh, there's some for everybody who uh, has, uh, you know, is of the proper age, right? And uh, that's what I like to tell people is like, hey, your cross-eyed cousin who uh, doesn't go in for this kind of thing, bring him. <laughs> bring Jean Jacket America. They'll love it too. <laughs> well, and that's the thing about Evil, Evil Dead, right? I mean, it's, the, it's a kind of movie that you can watch almost 40 years later here and sort of get sucked into the culture and now and then understand why people are so into it. I mean, Dan, they must have released 15 copies or 15 versions of the Army of Darkness DVD. Oh, they've had different cuts and different endings and, yeah, different releases and they've you know, Bruce Campbell versus Evil Dead and, and this and that and the other. And What is it about Bruce Campbell? Our our good friend behind the glass, Jerry, loves him. What's the deal with him? You know what? He's, I, I think one of the biggest appeals is that he knows exactly who he is. He's, you know, he's written books, confessions of a B movie actor. Like he's not trying to be Brad Pitt. He's very much just like himself, which is kind of a cool dude. And uh, and he just embodied this character so well with um, uh, within the films and with the TV series that he did a couple of years ago and the slapstick and the and the the comedy aspect of it. He just it, it's like putting on an old glove 
that's a sensibility <laughs> that I think he gets because he's from Detroit yeah. originally. And you're not going to always have that from like L.A., New York people because you grow up in an industry where you have to hold yourself to like a proud standard. Whereas if you come from somewhere in like middle America or, you know, even here in Winnipeg, there's more of a self-aware thing Mm -hmm. where it's like you feel lucky that you got into that role against all odds, but you still can know who you are and kind of be, yeah, self-aware. and It's like the movies and him as a person, not trying to be anything but what they are. Right. And there's something very appealing about that. It's like you, you, you understand it from a very base level of like... I know who I am, and he knows who he is, and now we can connect on that, even though I'm not on a murderous rampage. (laughs) 30 seconds, Ryan, do you get to use a chainsaw? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I get to use a chainsaw. (laughs) Is it on your hand? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's on, well, I mean, what are we doing here? Yeah, it's on my hand. Right on, it's the full Evil Dead experience, and it starts tomorrow night at the Park Theatre. It runs through Saturday, November 3rd. It's Evil Dead the Musical, bigger, badder, bloodier at the Park Theatre and Wasteline Productions presenting this show. Dan Dieger, co-producer, co-director, Ryan Ash plays Ash, and Robin Slade plays Annie Noby. Thank you so much for coming in to tell us about this very exciting stuff. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.